All right, go ahead and uh, open up to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Today will be um, the to be continued moment for our summer in the Psalm series. I was told I can't say the end because it's not the end until next summer. So um, it's the to be continued moment, I guess. It'll be the last one of um, this summer. Um, next week, we will begin a, a new series. Uh, for those of you who are kind of on the um, one of the Facebook pages, you saw I posted the question um, about some issues that you kind of see throughout um, the church in general and local and, and just Christianity in general. And um, after kind of a lot of prayer and and, and Working through those, um, we're going to start a series next week called Basic, and it actually is a study of 1 John. So um, a lot of the issues that kept coming up were actually rooted in 1 John, and so um, what better way to cover some of the, the topics that we need to, to discuss than looking um at the scripture so in that way but but next week we'll move from summer in the psalms to uh, basic and it is i believe going to be extremely challenging for all of us to look at the book of first john it's it's a very short book um, it will lead us up until advent season um, and and i i really do believe and, and i pray that it will um speak volumes to our lives um, as individuals um, and as a church. But today, we're in Psalm 17. Um, you'll notice you do not have a bulletin that tells you the sermon title or a bulletin to write notes in. Um, I actually lost the majority of my files off of my computer about two weeks ago, including that one. Um, and Byron was on vacation, so no bulletin. Um, yeah, so you're getting no note-taking ability unless you have your own, okay? Uh, but this morning, the, the title of us looking at Psalm 17 is, I Shall Be Satisfied. Every one of us, and everyone in general, longs to find purpose and meaning for our life. I mean, that's what we do. We, we strive to fill a void within us. Um, and, and in pursuit of that, our ultimate goal typically is that we would be satisfied. So we're, we're trying to satisfy a longing. We're trying to satisfy a desire. We're trying to satisfy a search for meaning. We are trying to do something that we can't do. And it is, um, it's a longing that invades us all from birth, right? So tonight, we're celebrating the um, upcoming arrival of baby Sheezer. And for those of you who are parents, you know that at the moment your child is born, it begins to do what? Cry. Why? It's the baby's way of saying, feed me, change me, serve me. And even if the baby doesn't understand that, there's this innate nature that, that calls out to be served, right? Now, 
as that baby begins to grow and becomes a toddler, that same thing happens, but it kind of morphs because the toddler begins to use words. Now, it might not simply be crying. It could be manifesting itself in other ways, but that toddler is demanding to be served, right? I'm sure none of you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then that toddler grows up a little more, and then that still happens, and it just begins to manifest itself differently as a child grows, right? I see a lot of smiles, so I know you know exactly what I'm referring to. But the thing is, is it doesn't stop when we become adults. Then our lives begin to completely change, and everything we do, everything we're striving for, everything we're longing for, feels our own nature to be as God. We want to be number one. We want to be served. We want to be made much of. We want everything within us and around us to make us God. This is the story of every human being. This is the story of life. But the truth of the matter is, only God can truly satisfy. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what spouse you marry. It doesn't matter how many kids you have or how those kids act or, or what you can achieve. It doesn't, none of that matters, right, ultimately. None of those things can fill the void in your heart that God can. My life is telling this story. I've learned and I'm learning really over the last probably month, month and a half, how important it is to rely on God above all things. I have been completely open with you about my struggles with anxiety. Um, and what I'm learning is that a lot of those struggles that I face are really manifesting themselves because of my lack of trust in God. So, I spend money on clothes that I hope will help um, me look okay, like self-image issues. Um, I spend um, gobs of money on food because I'm trying to satisfy a longing in my soul um, with food instead of the Lord. I spend so much time on consuming things. Um approval from people, and the list goes on and on, instead of simply resting in the person and work of Jesus and being satisfied in him. And as I'm learning more and more that only God can truly satisfy, the more challenging it is to me to find rest in him and not all of those other things. Now, I'm not saying it's unimportant to, to care what other people think because there is a degree of that. That's part of living with Christian integrity. We don't just live as rambunctious rebels. But if our value, our longing, our worth, and our meaning are in anything other than Christ, we're missing the point. Now, Psalm 17 is a prayer. Now, there have been a lot of prayer-type sermons, messages from Psalms so far. 
But this is actually the first that is inscribed as a prayer. The others are songs. They're, they're meant for liturgical parts of a worship service. Um, they're cries out to God. But this is the first one that is inscribed, a prayer of David. And what we see here is that David is showing his trust in God regardless of the circumstances he's facing. Ultimately, he is finding his greatest satisfaction in the Lord. Now, as a lot of the Psalms of David, we don't know the specifics. We don't know if he is already king. We don't know if he has been um, called to be king, but not yet there yet. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know. But, but think about it like this. If David had been anointed king, but had not yet received the throne, we know that Scripture says that people were singing his praises before he ever took the throne, right? And then when he became king, he's... The king, right? So he has access to all he could ever want. But here in this psalm, he is saying that his satisfaction comes ultimately from the Lord. Not from the fame, not from the money, not from the power, not from all of the stuff, but from God himself. And as a lot of the psalms that we have seen up to this point, David is going through some type of adversity. And yet he's still saying, the Lord is everything. And the main idea for Psalm 17, where we're going to be spinning our focus today, is that in the midst of raging storms, the righteous will turn to God in prayer and be satisfied in Him alone. Will you pray with me? Father, as we open your word this morning, we come anticipating that you will meet us through the working of your spirit. And we come trusting that you have prepared every one of us to hear from you today. That regardless of where we are currently in life, that your word will speak to us, to our souls, to our situations, to our circumstances. And our cry, our prayer is that we today would be so challenged and encouraged by your word that we would want nothing more than to see you as our ultimate source of satisfaction. So we do pray, Father, that as we work through this psalm together, that you would meet us and that we would be surrendered to you, that we would hear your word and that it will take deep root within our lives and that for most of us, the constant battle and temptation to fill our lives with everything in addition to you would cease and we would just see you and want you lifted high within us. So we ask that you would meet us, Father. Meet us in your word. Speak. Speak. 
Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we begin to dive into Psalm 17, and as we are keeping this main idea in the back of our mind, that in the midst of raging storms, the righteous will turn to God in prayer and be satisfied in Him alone, we dive into verse 1 that says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. We begin with David crying out for God to search his heart. For God to take him and tear down the little pieces to make sure that in the midst of this adversity, he is innocent. Because again, David is facing some serious adversity. And in the midst of this storm, he is turning to God in prayer. He again is not turning to his own power, to his own abilities, to anything else. He turns to the Lord. And he begins to plead his case. Now, in pleading his case, he's seeking the Lord for help. He's seeking the Lord as his refuge. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. He believes that in whatever this situation is, he is innocent. That he has sought the Lord. That he has done justly what the Lord would have him to do. But the point is, is he's seeking the Lord in prayer. That in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this season, he is turning to the Lord in prayer. And the reality is, is that prayer is a gracious gift from God and a weapon for the righteous. We live in a, in a time and, and a place as people where we fight spiritual battles daily. And if we are to go to war, we need to go to war with the only tool that can defeat all things, and that is God himself. And he gives us this beautiful gift of prayer that he hears us and that he listens to us. So for us, when we're facing these hard times, when we're facing these struggles, we must constantly be asking ourselves, where are we turning? And I know this seems redundant from the last several weeks, but there's a reason that the word keeps pushing us in this direction. So where are we turning when times get rough? Are we turning to the world and all it has to offer to fill the void that only God can fill? Or are we turning to God himself? That's a serious question. And I know we're so quick to flippantly answer that. But we must deeply call out to God to search our hearts. Where am I turning when all seems to be falling apart? Where am I turning when... Things may be okay, but maybe there's just a blip here and there. When I maybe have some struggles at home or I have um, this potential loss of job or even if a loss of a life, where am I turning for hope? I love this quote from John Bunyan. He says, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us and he wants us to call out to him David moves on and he says in verse 3 you have tried my heart and you have visited me by night you have tested me and you will find nothing I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress 
With regard to the works of man by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Again, David is asking God to search his heart, search the very depths of his soul, believing that he is innocent in this situation. He's not saying that he's innocent of sin. He's still a sinful human being. We are none without sin. But he's crying out to God, trusting that he has done exactly what God would have him to do. And he's still facing persecution. He's still facing adversity. And so he turns to the Lord in prayer. And he's even saying that in this particular situation, by God's help, he has avoided the temptation. He's pushed back against the temptation to retaliate. He's upholding the integrity that God has given him. Now, how many of us do we fail in this area? When someone says something that we disagree with or they do something that goes against what we believe, we immediately begin to want to retaliate. We make outlandish claims. We uh, make unfair judgments. We hold bitterness and anger within us. We go to Facebook. But as Christians, it's so important for us that we must diligently guard our integrity in order to guard our witness. As we've talked about in the last several weeks, holiness is so vitally important for us. It's important because God is holy, and we are called to be holy as he is holy. And we know that we'll fail, but by God's grace, we still work in that direction. Being led by the Spirit of God to become more like Christ. And we're so flippant sometimes with the way we live that we forget what holiness looks like. And again, this is not about living checking boxes and living legalistically. This is about living in the image of Christ. Bearing the image of Christ on our bodies. It's a lot harder to share the gospel with someone that you live completely the same as. Think about it. I mean, because we live in a culture and, and, and a lot of our church is made up of um, the millennial generation, and the millennial generation is being known more and more for um, just embracing rebellion. And so we, we flaunt our freedoms, we boast our freedoms, and we live no differently than the world. And so if I'm going to a friend who I know does not know Christ, and I say that I know Christ, but my life looks exactly the same as his, why should they want Jesus? If all it's going to be is a hindrance to them. But if I'm living my life completely set apart in a way that is radically different. Wouldn't that make someone say, man, there is something truly different. I'm willing to listen. So we must guard our integrity. We must guard our lives so that we can guard our witness. And David is crying out for God to search his heart. To make sure that he has done the things that he should have done. Done, And then he asks God to hear his words. He says, I call upon you, verse 6, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. 
wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David, in his prayer, he's urgently calling for God to hear him. He says, hear my words and wondrously show your steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, we have harped on it and harped on it and harped on it, not only through the Psalms, but all times when we come to it, because it's the Hebrew word hesed, and it literally means it's God's unfailing, never-ending, matchless love. There is nothing that you and I can do to make God not love us. Nothing. No, no weight of sin will make God turn his face from us if we have trusted in him. And he says, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love. David is desperate to hear from the Lord. And even when it seems that God may be silent, he doesn't lose hope. How many times have we cried out to God and cried out to God and cried out to God over a particular issue and it seems that he's not answering us and we begin to lose hope? Is it because we're not trusting in God? Is it because we're not actually believing that he can do what he says he's going to do? Is it because we put more weight in the answer to prayer than the God of the receiving of those prayers? I know there have been times in my life where I've just cried out and cried out and cried out. And in frustration, I say, God, it seems that every time I cry out for something serious, I never hear. But then I have to remind myself of Romans 8, that God says that he is working all things together for good for those who love him or called according to his purpose. And that all is without an asterisk. He's always working for the good of his people, always, even when it seems that he is silent and even when the answer seems to be contrary to what we're calling out for. God is always at work. And if we believe that God is who he says he is, then we must take Romans 8 to the bank and understand that he will never leave. And in David's prayer, he's showing that his trust in God is much greater than the circumstances he's facing. There's nothing that's going to come against him to make him all of a sudden doubt the goodness of God. I mean, there may be seasons of of questioning, but ultimately he comes back to the Lord knowing that the Lord is good. I mean, haven't we seen that through these Psalms constantly where David is crying out and then he's like, oh man, where, where are you? And then he comes back to the end rejoicing because of the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. David is trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord. And it's that trust that leads him to understand that God would also be a refuge for his people. Not just him. And so the promise for us is that the steadfast love of God provides all of the hope and security we need to live confidently as Christians. How often do we try to not live in confidence because we, we don't know the word like we should or we, we're not spending time in the word like we should or our lives are not reflecting Jesus like we think they should and so we, we just bow out of living for him or, or seeking him with everything we have but he has given us all we need to do all he wants us to do if we simply trust. That's why we say Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10, all the time, Right? 
Because it's the work of God who saves in Ephesians 8 and 9. And he does that in order to use us by his grace and for his glory. Leading us to works that he has already prepared beforehand. Which means there is nothing that you can I can will come against that God doesn't know about or he's not prepared for. He has set this plan in motion and he has called us to be a part of this plan. And he is lovingly leading us and caring for, her, for us all the way. Which gives us all the confidence we need to live for the glory of God. Are you going to fail? Absolutely. But God won't. I know there's been many times in my life where I feel the need to share the gospel with someone or confront someone about a particular issue where they're um, not going with the scripture. And I just don't do it because I feel um, inadequate. But God doesn't call me to change anyone's mind. God doesn't call me to convert anyone. All God does is he wants me to be trusting in him and to be faithful to do what he set me apart to do. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It takes faith in him leading us to do the works he has called us to do. And David is calling out to God to hear his words, to, to, to understand that he is resting in him and him alone, but he's not losing heart. And that leads us to verses 8 and 9 where we begin to see the thrust of David's prayer as he's seeking refuge and protection from God. He says in verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. He's seeking the Lord's help. He's seeking the Lord as refuge. And so he uses these two quick analogies. Keep me as the apple of your eye. This would have been reference to the pupil of the eye. Which, thankfully, we have a handy optometrist in our congregation that I could research this with. The pupil is vitally important to us. I'm not going to tell all of how it's important because I can't remember it all. I mean, I could probably read you the text, but it would take me probably 30 minutes to find the text. So I'm just telling you it is vitally important. All right? If I were to put you in front of me and I were to throw a ball at your face, what is the immediate thing you do? You cover your eye. That's our first reaction, all right? To cover and in their time, they would have understood that the pupil was so vitally important that that is the thing that they are protecting in an attack or in danger. But not even stopping there, he goes even further. He says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. And there's a direct reference here to um, a, a bird in the desert as a mom bird would spread out her wing to provide shade for her young to cover them from the heat of the desert sun, to cover them from the danger of the heat that they were bearing. And so, likewise, God covers us and he protects us as his own because we are. David is coming to the Lord seeking the Lord's provision, seeking shelter from his enemies, knowing that it didn't matter what the enemy was or how powerful the enemy might be, none of them were as powerful as God himself. Which should be a great encouragement for us that as we 
go throughout life and as things do get very difficult, we can always turn to the Lord. But likewise, we need to be reminded that we shouldn't only go to the Lord when things get bad. That's the tendency, right? To desperately cry out to God when we, know, when, that's when we need Him, but in doing so, we're showing a lack of faith and understanding that we need Him always. He's on verse 10 through 12. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Those who were pursuing David were vicious, evil. No regard for God, no regard for God's people, and no regard for the sanctity of life. They wanted him dead, period. Now, we don't know why. We don't know the details of the situation, but the reality is is because he was leading a life of righteousness and he was leading a life as a man of God. There were people who hated him. Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. If we follow Christ and we pursue Christ as his children, you will face persecution. Your life may not be immediately threatened, but you'll face persecution. You may be mocked. You may be left out of things. You may be condemned, but they cannot take away the love of the Savior. And it's easy to look at that situation and put ourselves in David's shoes rather than the other way around, isn't it? That we're the ones crying out, God, save me from these who are like lions who are lurking in ambush. When probably a lot more often it's the reverse. Because of the pride within us, we attack. We hate. But when our hearts are overfilled with pride, we no longer are living in a way that honors Jesus and will prove our points at whatever cost necessary, even if it means hurting others. And I mean even if it means hurting each other, our brothers and our sisters in Christ, because of differences in opinion, because of different thought processes. We have to guard ourselves, remember, Keep ourselves. And remember that when people sin against you, it's no worse than what you have done against Christ himself. I try to remind myself of that all the time. There's nothing that anybody can do to me that's worse than what I've done to Jesus. And he loves me and he gives himself for me. And in that moment, David confidently calls out, to God, verse 13, he says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. I love, Stephen Lawson refers to this as, um, it's kind of like language of a battle cry. He's calling out for God to move. But notice that David is understanding that, that the battle isn't his. 
Even though he's the one being pursued, even though he's the one going through the adversity, it's not his battle, it's God's battle. He's simply an instrument in the hands of God. How do we know that? Because he says, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. He's not saying, give me the strength to confront him, give me the words to say, give me the, the wit to attack. He's saying, you do it, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. He knows that the battle is God's. How often do we take, again, the alternate approach? And we take the battle into our own hands and we begin to retaliate and fight instead of turning it over to the Lord. We have to remember, though, when we do those things, it's being fueled by pride and sin and we begin to hurt and destroy others. He goes on in verse, the beginning of verse 14. He said, for men by your hand, O Lord, for men of the world whose portion is in this life. He needed God to save him from these enemies. He turned to the Lord because the battle is the Lord's. Who are the enemies? The enemies are those who are, are his enemies in this particular case, are those who do not find their refuge in God. Their refuge is in the world and whose portion is in this life, who hold everything this life has to offer much higher than God. They have replaced God with other things. They are not honoring God. They have honored the God of this world. Which means they've also given way to the ways of this world. So David is crying for God to deliver him. How much do we need to be challenged and encouraged by this? And this is the beauty of how God works. In praying about where to go next in Scripture, hearing the answers coming in from various people, you know what the commonality was? Our lack of love for others. Our lack of love for each other. It manifests itself in different answers, but that was the thrust of it all. Maybe we don't see people the way that Christ sees us. Maybe we don't love each other the way that Christ loves us. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. But that doesn't mean we don't try. And that kind of got me thinking, like, what is probably the biggest weakness of our church? can't speak to others because I'm not there. But what is probably our biggest weakness? A deep love for each other. Now, we do spend time together on occasion, yeah. 
We probably enjoy our times together, but do we truly love each other? And the way that we want to spend time with each other and the way that we pray for each other and the way that we care for each other food for thought because that's beautifully really how God has orchestrated this transition from summer in the Psalms to 1st John that we would land in Psalm 17 that calls us to truly question these things and then David moves to the latter half of verse 14 he says you fill their womb with treasure they're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David is calling for God to satisfy his soul. And the end of verse 14 there is showing that David, again, is trusting in the Lord, right? Because it's God and God alone who satisfies. And yes, as we see at the end of verse 14, sometimes he does provide physical satisfaction because he greatly loves his people. But ultimately, our satisfaction in Jesus can't be grounded in the temporal blessings of this world. So if God fails to do the end of verse 14, are we still going to be able, verse 15, to say, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And as much as we might not want to admit it, I think because of the nature within us, if we're not receiving these temporal blessings from God, then we fail to want God. So the question really is, is God enough? Because there are going to be times where instead of verse 14b, you fill their wombs with treasure, they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Instead of receiving those physical blessings, we might receive the opposite. And we might begin to lose our family. We might lose our jobs. We might lose our homes. We might lose everything. But are we holding fast to the promises of God? Are we remembering, again, Romans 8? And that's an easy one to go to because it's pretty clear that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If we believe that promise, then we can echo the hope that David has in verse 15. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Because our ultimate source of satisfaction must be in Christ alone. If we died at this very moment and we stood before God, would, be able, would we be rejoicing as we look at the face of God in righteousness? Or would we have regret that I didn't get to see that happen, or I didn't get to experience this, or I'm going to miss this? The temptation is to have that type of thought. Are we ready? Are we truly trusting in the Lord? 
But ultimately, David lands at this point in verse 15. He's basically saying, I don't really care what happens to me at this point. Because my satisfaction isn't in my fame. My satisfaction isn't in my throne. My satisfaction isn't even in the fact that whether or not God will deliver me. My satisfaction rests in God, in God alone. And so as for me, I will not find my value, my worth, my purpose, my meaning in these temporal blessings of this world. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. His satisfaction was in Jesus. His satisfaction was in the promise of Jesus, I should say. That God would be faithful. And if we truly believe God to be who he says he is, and if we truly believe that his word is his word, then we also must understand that even in the ups and downs of life, God remains the same. Because it's easy to question when things get hard. It's easy to question when others are getting blessed and we're not. And when I say blessing, I'm using it like in the worldly term blessing, right? Temporal, like physical blessings, which is so often the thrust of um, mainstream Christianity today or messages like what you hear on the radio and TV. It's all about what we can get, right? It's not about Jesus. How can Jesus bless me? But here what he's saying is, is it enough for me to simply be satisfied, not with your stuff, what's he say? With your likeness. If we believe that God is who he says he is, and we believe that his word is his word, then we must be satisfied in who he is and what he has promised. And when things begin to go haywire, we can't lose hope. Because when we begin to lose hope and we begin to doubt, then what we're doing is we're actually doubting the nature and the character of God. Because if we say we believe his word to be his word, and if we say we believe him to be who he says he is, then when we begin to doubt him, then we're doubting what he's saying in his word. And so we're saying that he's goofed. God can't goof. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what is our thrust? Can we say, I shall be satisfied with your likeness? Is Jesus enough? If you played the part of Job today and you lost everything, would you still be able to bless the name of the Lord? every day we are faced with temptation to find satisfaction outside of Jesus. But nothing can and nothing will fill the void of Jesus in our souls. Like he can. Like he will. So I want to challenge you this morning to just take stock of your life and of your heart. Is Christ central And I want to encourage you to begin to, as you take stock, to turn your focus to Him. Is there something that is 
become more important to you than Christ. Jesus told him, if your eye calls you to sin, gouge it out. Truly take care of your soul by seeing, what am I making God instead of honoring God? What am I craving? What am I thriving for? It's going to look different for everybody. Because we're all different. The things that I put the most weight and value in are not going to be the same things you put the most weight and value in. But regardless, they should all be moments and items and things and thoughts that we should question to say, are they taking my focus off of Christ? And then I also want you to consider your prayer life. Are you spending adequate time with the Father in prayer? And this is a twofold question, right? Because the flip side is, is are we listening intently through the word at what God may say back? It's easy to just say prayer all day long, right? It's a lot harder to take time, open the word of God, and listen for him to speak through his word. Which is also a really key ingredient to understanding discernment right if all of a sudden you're praying out and crying out to god and he starts giving you answers that that kind of contradict his word i'm telling you you're being deceived that's not god speaking to you god has given us his word and it is finished folks so when somebody begins to tell you they got a new revelation nope there are no new revelations they might have some false teachings but they're not giving you new revelations. So if we want to truly hear from the Lord, we have to open His Word and listen. Lastly, I just want to encourage you that if you're here today and all of a sudden you're realizing that the, you're trying to fill this void in your life that only Jesus can fill with so many other, other things and you've truly never trusted in Jesus, to just trust Him. It's worth it. To surrender your life completely to Him. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for leading us through these psalms together. while how interesting it is for me father to have entered into this journey this summer with a particular intention on what we will be looking at and and seeing in the scripture but to to realize how different it is to know that you have given us a particular scope of messages, but yet they seem to be right on point. God, I'm so thankful for the blessing you give us in your word. And the hope we have in knowing that you know all things. And that you're working all things together for good. 
So God, I pray that today we truly will just analyze ourselves. Are we trusting in you above all things? Are there many other things that we're putting before you? Are you just getting the leftovers? And not only would we analyze God, but we would be willing to make the necessary changes to find ultimate rest and hope and trust in you. That if our spouse, if we're worshiping our spouse more than we're worshiping you, that we would be willing to go to them and say, listen, I got to get my stuff right with the Lord. So we're going to turn to the Lord together. Or if I'm putting my kids before you, that I would be able to come to you and that they would understand that I see you as the most important thing in my life. Same with my job or my hobbies, money, image, consumption, food, clothing, whatever it is that we would be willing to make the necessary changes as we trust you to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So meet us here in this moment by your grace and for your glory.